Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in British Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Mark Clovis, your host for the channel. Today, I'm speaking with Alan Allport, author of the book Britain at Bay, the epic story of the Second World War, 1938 to 1941. Alan, welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, Mark. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for agreeing to be on our podcast. I was wondering if you could start us off by telling our listeners something about yourself. Sure. Okay. Uh, I am a professor of history at Syracuse University in uh, central New York State. Uh, As you can probably guess from my voice, I'm not uh, a a native Syracusan. I was uh, born in Liverpool in England, and I moved to the United States uh, about 25 years ago and did my PhD uh, at the University of Pennsylvania and uh, then came to Syracuse about 10 years ago. Uh, My research specialty is the history of um, Britain, particularly in the Second World War. Uh, And I've written uh, so far three books on that subject. My first book, Demobbed, which came out in uh, 2009, was a history of the demobilization experience of the British Armed Forces uh, at the end of the Second World War. Um, My second book, Browned Off and Bloody Minded, uh, which was published in 2015, was a social uh, history of the British Army during the Second World War. And my new book, uh, Britain at Bay, is the first volume in a two-volume history of Britain in a more general sense during the Second World War. What led you to go from a focus on the British soldier to uh, writing a more general history of the British experience in the Second World War? That's a good question. I, I think, uh, you know, the, the, what's tended to happen with all my books is that the, um, the further I've gone along, the, the, the broader I've gotten. You know, some people go in the opposite direction and get more and more specific uh, in their um in their research, and I have tended to go broader. I think it's because with each passing book, um, bigger questions seem to have emerged, which I thought deserved some exploration. So with Demobbed, uh, I wrote very specifically about demobilization, which raised questions for me about, well, what was the experience of actually being in the armed forces like during the Second World War, which led me to my second book. And then my second book, of course, raised bigger questions about what society itself, uh, uh, British society, was like during the war? Why, why were some of the reasons why Britain ended up in the, uh, the, the country that it was by 1945? How had the war shaped it? Um, and I felt that the, you know, there is clearly a, a very large existing literature on this subject, but um, some of the answers that were in that literature didn't always strike me as entirely satisfactory. Plus, an awful lot of the literature is also um, scholarly and uh, extremely important, but not always very accessible to a more general reader. And so one of the the aims that I had for this um, history, of which I've now 
finished the first volume, is to try and present a lot of the really exciting research that's been done on Britain in the Second World War, but in a more accessible way for an audience which wouldn't necessarily pick up an academic journal or read an academic monograph. I was thinking as I was reading it is that your, your approach is revisionist in, in a sense, and, and that's a word that that I think has become far more loaded than it necessarily has to be. But you're, you definitely are uh, pushing back against some of the received interpretations or received understandings that we have about the uh, war. And, and you start that not with the war itself, but with the misconceptions that, that many people might still have about uh, Great Britain in the 1930s. And I was wondering if you could perhaps uh, start us off with the book by, by talking a bit about uh, what, you know, perhaps what it is that you're, you're, you're seeking to have us understand about Britain in the 1930s. And in particular, the, the, the framing device that you use you, you, uh, throughout the book, we, we, you frame it in terms of, of, of Tolkien Shire people, which I thought was a very interesting uh, framing device, and, and, and about how, and how, it, how you feel that this captures a, a, a particular mindset that helps us to better understand the, uh, you know, the British attitude towards Europe, the prospect of war, and then their approach towards the war itself. Okay. Um, yeah, I, I mean, the reason that I, I latched onto the idea of looking at the war through Tolkien, I mean, Tolkien wrote The Lord of the Rings after the Second World War, um, but its influence on, on his work is, is undeniable. Um, and it struck me um, reading so much of the received wisdom about Britain's wartime role and um, what Britain was like that so much of it was filtered through this kind of uh, Tolkien-esque conception of what the British were like uh, in the early part of the 20th century. So I use the expression, the Shire folk, um, to talk about this myth. Um, the way in which the British very much conceive themselves and are conceived by others as having been um, this rather gentle, parochial, innocent people who were uh, found themselves dragged into a, a, a foreign war, which uh, to begin with they they didn't really understand and weren't weren't particularly prepared for. Um, and of course, the problem with this is that it's very hard to square in many ways with the idea of Britain being a global superpower uh, in the years before the Second World War. Britain was the, in many ways the largest military power on earth. It controlled two fifths of the world's land surface, um, and and the sort of the 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 dissonance between those ideas uh, is what got me interested. So, I mean, thinking about you know Britain in the uh, the nineteen thirties before the war breaks out, um, many of the myths around the war, um, and particularly Britain's preparation for the war, are come from that period. It's largely taken for granted, for instance, that. Um, the British, because of a, uh, a lack of interest or a lack of desire in taking seriously Hitler's Germany or the threat from fascism, neglected rearmament uh, and found itself in, in 1939 wholly unprepared for war. This is a complete misunderstanding of what actually happens. I mean, first of all, Britain was always an important military power uh, throughout the wars, uh, between the wars, had the, by far the largest navy. Uh, had a uh, you know very significant air force for much of the time, and of course with the Indian Army as well as its own army had a very large army. But throughout the certainly the second half of the 1930s, 
Britain rearms prodigiously um, under the leadership, of course, of Neville Chamberlain, the much despised uh, prime minister who was responsible for the appeasement policy. Chamberlain certainly wishes to try and um, negotiate a lasting settlement with Hitler. Chamberlain has no desire to go to war for a number of different reasons. Um, But he's also not ignorant of the fact that appeasement will be uh, a most effective policy when it is backed up with realistic deterrence. And so there is an enormous investment in um, the armed forces, so much so, in fact, that um, Britain finds itself in some significant financial difficulty by the, the late 30s because of the, the cost of this, the buildup of this military industrial complex. Now, much of the, the payoff for that rearmament effort doesn't actually manifest itself until several years into the war, and, and Britain and France suffer some very significant military defeats um, in 1940, obviously the fall of France being the most uh, important of these. But that's not because of lack of preparation, per se. Um, one could argue that the British and French didn't prepare in exactly the right way, or that they didn't use exactly the right um, uh, operational plan uh, in order to try and uh, confront the Germans. But it's not for a, it's not for a lack of uh, of willingness to spend on armaments. So this is just one of one example of the way in which you know, the the um, the received understanding about in, in popular culture about what you know Britain was like uh, and the reality differ quite a bit. I, I should that was one of the things that, that I really appreciated about your use of the the Shire Focus framing device is that you were very careful not to push it too far. I mean, how you set that image, for example, against what was happening, say, in Palestine, where the uh, military was you know, participating in what we you know would regard as as an anti insurgency campaign, or how you talked about how they were hardly a peaceful Shire folk because they were dealing with an IRA bombing campaign. And, and how when you talk about these, it, it's a slightly different picture of uh, who the British were in the 1930s that makes it in some ways uh, understandable why it was that people were not necessarily as appalled by what was happening in Germany or why they that why they were not as, you know, why they were thinking that they had you know concerns of their own and did not want to be engaged. Yeah, I mean, one of the things I wanted to try and demolish was the idea of the British being particularly peaceful. <laughs> I mean, one, it could be argued, and I will going to explore this more in the second volume, uh, that you know one of the reasons why the British win the Second World War ultimately is because they're they're quite prepared to to not be at all nice. Um, the second part of the war, in particular, is is mostly about the British killing other people. It is not the British themselves being killed. Uh, and they turn out to be very effective at this. They're 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 very good uh, at killing uh, on a on an industrial scale, most uh, obviously manifested in the the strategic bombing campaign. But even uh, you know before this, we see um, Britain as being an often ruthless imperial power in the late 1930s. That's how you become an imperial power. You don't become it by uh, you know by, by being soft hearted. Um, I also wanted to explore in those early chapters the the way in which if we look at the United Kingdom more broadly, uh, it is in many ways not a very peaceable kingdom. Uh, the last few years have shown the way in which uh, many Britons are remain ignorant of the fact that the United Kingdom is not just England, Scotland and Wales, but also Northern Ireland. It's very hard to look at the story of Northern Ireland in the 1930s and think of this as being 
a peaceable kingdom. In fact, there are some un- uncomfortable parallels at times between the kind of sectarian violence that's going on in Ulster and the kind of events that are taking place on the continent. Um, so this was this was something I, I you know I, I wanted to get at. The other thing about the thirties is that you know we tend to think of Britain before the war in two very polarized ways. Um, one is of the sort of Downton Abbey view of the of, of Britain as being a land of aristocrats and country houses, uh, and the other is of um, a Britain of misery, poverty, unemployment, um, the kind of um, scenes of of, uh, of of squalor and depression that you think you think of in something like George Orwell's The Road to Wigan Pier. Now, both of these things existed, of course, um, but there was also a different kind of Britain that was emerging in the 1930s and one that was to prove to be crucial to its success in, in the Second World War. This is a very modern Britain that's uh, partly a legacy of the First World War, a Britain which is concerned with modern engineering, with modern science and technology. You look at the kind of uh, places like uh, in the West Midlands or in some of the outer um, towns around Greater London, in which the modern um, automobile industry was developing, uh, the modern aviation industry, uh, radio, um, and you know this this is a, this is a Britain which is not looking into the past, but in many ways is is a very forward looking place, um, and it's it's a view which has sort of disappeared because um, after 1945. The 1930s became vilified in many ways as being this sort of lost decade of, uh, you know, of the dole, uh, mass unemployment and poverty, uh, to which the, you know, the post-1945 world was compared very unfavorably. But that's not really the case. There was a lot of misremembering about what Britain had, had been like. Britain in many ways has a quite dynamic economy in the 1930s, for instance. This is not a, a land of, 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 of pure depression. And these things matter when it comes to the preparation and, and eventually the, the fighting of the Second World War. You also uh, address the, the source of a lot of those uh, misconceptions. And, and, and here I'm thinking about how you, when you're talking about the 1930s and, and, and appeasement and rearmament, you address, among other things, the role of Winston Churchill, who has this... Uh, has an image that that's very difficult to shake in part because he was, as the you know saying might go, he was you know present at the creation of it because he sat down and wrote his memoirs and conveyed a certain narrative that that has that, that has played into a lot of what you just described and and then reinforced it. And this gets to how uh, you know we see Churchill as someone who is standing up from the start against the Nazis and how he's pushing back against Chamberlain's refusal to to rearm. And as you explained, just in the same way as Britain was rearming in the 1930s under Chamberlain's direction, so too Winston Churchill was not quite the uh, absolute irresolute uh, all time opponent of everything related to appeasement that he subsequently uh, you know encouraged us to think. Right. Well, the story of appeasement uh, is, is, you know, this is perhaps the classic case in the in the 20th century of a, of a story in which the popular memory distorts so much of, of, of what actually took place. Um, Chamber- uh, sorry, Churchill had the uh, inestimable advantage over Chamberlain in two ways. First of all, he was still alive when the war ended and uh, Chamberlain had died in 1940 and so wasn't around to, to defend his actions 
The other was that Churchill was a uh, marvellous writer. Uh, I don't think anybody could ever deny that. And his six-volume history of the Second World War in many ways established a lot of the, um, the popular myths of the war. Churchill, needless to say, wanted to represent his own story in as sympathetic a way as possible. And while his history of the war remains an invaluable source, and it's a wonderful read too, it also includes an awful lot of misconception. I mean, one of the things that Churchill wanted to do after 1945, of course, was to present his own attitudes in the 1930s as having been entirely consistent, which which they were not. Uh, he, he ebbed and flowed. Um, he didn't always have a, you know, a completely consistent view about the fascist dictators. For instance, he was always far more um, hostile towards Hitler than he had been towards Mussolini, for instance, uh, with whom he, he had a, a, a much more ambivalent view. The, the other issue is, is that um, you know, the, 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 the arguments over foreign policy in the 1930s are often presented in a very binary way, as if there was one single coherent group of people called appeasers, led by Neville Chamberlain, and an equally coherent group of anti-appeasers led by Churchill. And that's, that's problematic for a few reasons. One is that the, many people who were opposed to Chamberlain's policy didn't particularly support Churchill, who had baggage of his own. His, uh, you know, he was a Tory. Uh, he had been someone whose reputation had been very badly damaged by the arguments over Indian politics in the early 1930s. Uh, he was also old too, and was in many ways was seen as being a rather outdated figure. Other other anti appeasers such as Anthony Eden, um, who would would be Churchill's deputy during the the war, uh, were actually much more significant figures in the 1930s than we tend to remember now. The other issue is is that the anti appeasers were often a, a lot clearer about what they didn't like than what they did like. Chamberlain. Uh, often got very frustrated about this, is that in that he felt that whether you liked his policy or not towards Hitler, he felt that it was at least a coherent policy that you could actually understand. And he often objected to uh, the, his critics by saying, well, what else do you think we should do? Do you think that, you know, for instance, in, uh, you know, in, in, in 1937, you know, should we actually go to war with Adolf Hitler? And, you know, if we did go to war with him, you know, would we actually win the war? Would we have a realistic chance of, of defeating him? Would we be able to bring the country and the empire along with us? Would do we have a legitimate and clear clear cut enough uh, you know cause for war in order to unify the country? And if we don't have these things, and I think Chamberlain would have said that you know in 1937 and perhaps in 1938 too, they, these things did not exist. Then what else are we supposed to do? Um, and his critics often didn't have a very clear answer for that, um, which is one of the reasons, of course, for uh, you know the fact that appeasement was a, an extremely popular policy. It was, it was, you know, the anti-appeasers um, really don't represent a large, you know, body of public opinion until fairly late, really, in in, in 1939. So this is just one way in which I, th- I think, you know, poor Chamberlain, who is not it has to be said, a, a very commendable figure in terms of personality. I, I, one of the things I make a point of saying in, in Britain at Bay is, is that the more that you learn about Chamberlain personally, the, the easier he is to personally dislike. He was, <laughs> he, he was a, you know, he, he's an extremely arrogant man, uh, prickly, vain, 
uh, bigoted, uh, unimaginative in lots of ways. He's not. He's he's not an attractive figure on a, on a on a personal level, uh, and he's certainly much less attractive than Churchill in terms of of his writing. Um, yeah, that doesn't necessarily mean he was wrong uh, all the time. And the more that I read about him um, in my preparation for the book, the more sympathy I had for him in terms of the dilemma that he found himself in. It was just not a good idea to be British Prime Minister in 1937 and 1938 and 1939. Whoever had been had taken that role, and, and that includes Churchill in those years, would have faced many of the same dilemmas as, as Chamberlain. And the answers would not at all have been easy. Um, it's always easier, of course, to carp from the sidelines, which is which is what used to frustrate Chamberlain so much. So, I, you know, I, I do hope that, you know, the book, and I, this is the impression that I've got from some of the reader feedback, is that it has at least persuaded some people to, to, to rethink or to, lead, to give a second thought to some of the dilemmas of appeasement and to perhaps credit Chamberlain uh, with, with more... Um, to, to credit him with, with, with having to deal with a tremendously difficult problem in which there were no simple answers and there were lots of choices, all of which were bad choices in their own ways. And to sort of to, to feel as though, uh, you know, he was not simply perhaps the naive pantomime dupe that um, he tends to be presented in popular memory. Another area where you uh, look twice at something and, and, and ask us to reconsider is, is, the, is the phony war period. And this is another... Uh, period that we're here, that, that, that's the phrase that's typically given to the uh, first 10 months of the war when uh, Britain and France are at war with, German, with Germany. Uh, there's definitely uh, fighting taking place. There, there are definitely casualties uh, being, uh, you know, uh, suffered. But it's, it's not, you know, the, the, the sort of active, uh, ongoing struggle between armies that that characterize, say, the First World War. What was going on there, and 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 in what ways have we uh, misunderstood or or had that period of of the history misrepresented? Well, the phony war is obviously seen in hindsight in light of the fall of France in June of nineteen forty. France falls in a in a lightning campaign, uh, just six weeks. This so this shocks the world. Uh, nobody had anticipated that France would fall so quickly. <clears throat> and, of course, in, in light of that, um, what the Allies had been trying to do in the, in the eight to ten months previous to this obviously uh, did not look so good. And, you know, immediately the, uh, the vilification started. You know, where did we go wrong? Where were the lost opportunities? Um, you know, was this a period in which we sort of, you know, rather... Uh, naively or hubristically sat, sat and did nothing and allowed Hitler the opportunity to prepare and to pounce upon us. Um, now, uh, you know, clearly, uh, if you want history to look well on you, then you need to win. So uh, it, it's understandable that the, the strategy of the phony war doesn't look so good in hindsight. However, if, you, if, you, if we ignore the, the, the end of the, the, the defeat of France for a moment, which... Um, it's arguable is you know is is a, is an event which is very contingent and not at all predictable there is actually a lot to be said for the basic strategy that the british and the french employed at the beginning of the war that it was fun, it was founded on some fundamental axioms one of which was that um a dictatorship a militaristic dictatorship like hitler's germany would always be better prepared psychologically if not materially, for the beginning of a war. It was going to take time 
to prepare democratic populations for the kind of sacrifices and the kind of bloodshed that a war would require. In other words, Hitler was always going to have the advantage at the beginning of the war. And it was not going to be possible to defeat Hitler's Germany in a very short war that lasted just a few months. So attempting an immediate attack upon uh, Nazi Germany was not uh, a, 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 a strategy of success. However, both Chamberlain and Edouard de Ladier and uh, Paul Reynaud, who, uh, replaced, uh, who replaced him then as French uh, prime minister, you know, they all believe that uh, in the long run, um, the Allies have the, uh, have the advantage. If the war goes on for two or three years, then the sheer material advantages that the Allies possess, not just their own domestic economies and their, their uh, extensive global empires, but also the access they have to the resources of the new world, particularly the United States, means that inevitably they, they, they will win uh, a war like that. So, you know, in, uh, good strategy is supposed to be about, um, uh, you know, avoiding your own vulnerabilities and emphasizing your, your, uh, your own strengths. So it seemed to make a great deal of sense to actually sit back, um, allow the Germans... If they, if they so wished to attempt a knockout blow against the Allies, um, hopefully absorb that blow and successfully defend against it, and then prepare their own strength for a, a, a counteroffensive after a two or three years. Now, it doesn't work. The strategy does not work. That is clear. At least it doesn't work, it doesn't work for France. Britain manages to get away with it, um, but it doesn't work for the French. Does that mean that it was necessarily a terrible strategy? Uh, I would argue, no, in fact, in many ways, it's still basically the strategy that the Allies used to defeat Nazi Germany by 1945, by, um, you know, slowly building up material strength and eventually uh, invading Europe um, and, you know, defeating the the, the Germans by uh, sheer weight of numbers. It's just that, it, you know, its initial application fails. Um but that's a failure of execution. That's not a failure of the, con- the, the, the concept itself. In many ways, I think that the German strategy at the beginning of the war was far weaker in principle. Uh, the Germans were actually attempting something that was far more implausible. It's just that sometimes there are black swan events uh, in history. Things just work out in an unpredictable, perhaps even implausible ways. And um, in hindsight, then, those who are the victors on the battlefield look like geniuses and those who uh, are defeated look like fools, even though there might not necessarily have been anything wrong with the, um, with the basic concept behind the strategy of the losers. So let's talk a bit about uh, how that switch took place, that black swan event of, of the fall of France. And, and of course it's an event that uh, is preceded uh, uh, by the fall of Chamberlain because of a, a different event, which was the the, the fall of Norway, uh, what, what you know what what happened there, and what brought about the the change to where this uh, politically dominant figure, uh, widely uh, respected, don't want to go quite so far as to say beloved by his party, uh, is is replaced by someone who, uh, as you've uh, already demonstrated in the book, was seen by some as as a scoundrel, as as unreliable. Uh, as as someone who you know it, it was, was was something of a gamble uh, in, in himself in terms of uh, whether or not he would provide the sort of leadership they needed at at, at a time in which it seemed the war was turning against the British. Yeah, 
So Chamberlain falls in early May of 1940. It's interesting that if you look at the opinion polls, opinion polling was kind of in its infancy at this point, but, there, but Gallup was doing uh, some opinion polling about um, you know, prime ministerial favorability. Uh, is that right up to the early part of 1940, Chamberlain still is an ex- extremely popular figure uh, within Britain, far more popular than Churchill. And indeed, Gallup even asked explicitly, asked the voters, you know, if you had a choice between Churchill and Chamberlain, uh, who would you prefer to be prime minister? And Chamberlain still emerged as, as by far as the, the popular choice. I think what happens by, by the late spring of 1940 is that um, there is both a, a the, the doubts are starting to creep in a little bit about this wait and see policy, which I've just described, this kind of sitting back and allowing the, the Germans to take the initiative to begin with while we slowly accrue our, our strength. Um, and there is, a, there, there is a, a, a slight sense of anxiety on the Allied side, that you know, maybe this is maybe maybe this is a, a, a dangerous policy. Maybe there, in fact, that we do need to do something at least to try and kickstart the war. Um, that's the 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 seed of the Norwegian campaign, the decision by the British and French to intervene in Norway. It's a it's a rather complicated story to do with the um, Soviet attack on Finland, uh, which had taken place. Uh, late the previous year. Uh, but basically, the British and French try, decide to send an expeditionary force to, to Norway. Hitler uh, anticipates that they're going to do this and preempts them. And operationally, the Norwegian campaign is a, is a bit of a disaster. And it does, it, I, I, you know, it, it's something that um, seems to represent, I mean, Cham- Chamberlain is, is always politically unlucky in that he often has a habit of saying things uh, which which then sort of come back to haunt him. Um, so he had, of course, famously, infamously said right after the Munich Agreement that I believe that you know we have peace for our time, uh, which uh, of course you know didn't look so prescient a year later. Then shortly before the Norwegian campaign, he famously says, you know, I think Hitler has missed the bus. In other words, you know, Hitler has missed his opportunity to gain victory against the Allies. So with the disaster in Norway, a few. Uh, a few weeks later, uh, you know, Chamberlain uh, looks rather foolish. And um, there is a desire to shake up his cabinet uh, amongst many backbench Tory MPs. I don't think, actually, that when the famous Norway debate that takes place uh, in early May, and this is the, um, the, the two-day debate which leads to Chamberlain's resignation, I don't think a lot of his critics actually wanted him to resign. They did want uh, him to change some of the positions in his war cabinet, perhaps to have a more aggressive attitude towards the war. But I think they were genuinely surprised and perhaps even a little dismayed when he, when um, their rebellion against him meant that he resigned and Churchill took over. Churchill being a, a, in many ways a very, um, in some cases, disliked, or at least somebody was held in, in the deepest suspicion by many of members of his own party, not at all a... a um, figure in which you know large numbers of people had a huge amount of confidence um but anyway in, in many ways that the norwegian campaign might have been a footnote uh if the battle for france which takes place immediately afterwards had been successful now the germans launched this all or nothing attack on france in and the low countries in may of 1940 hitler does this 
not because he is confident, but because he is anxious. He is well aware of um, the fact that time is really on the Allies' side, not on his. Uh, that the longer this war drags out, the more precarious Germany's position will become. In, in that sense, you know, he wholly agrees with the, with uh, you know Chamberlain and Deladier about what about Allied strategy. He thinks that a long war is dangerous for Germany. So um, he launches this attack. Um, he hopes that his you know concentrated use of armored force and um, surprise will gain him some kind of victory. Most of his generals are extremely pessimistic about this. They think that it's a foolhardy move in lots of ways. They think that it won't work. Uh, you know, one of them suggests maybe it's got a ten percent chance of succeeding. Well, the thing about ten percent chances of succeeding is is that ten percent of the time they they happen, um, and the the allies uh, make a number of operationally poor decisions, which mean that unfortunately they um, they are uniquely exposed to this particular German attack, which comes through the southern uh, Belgian forests, the the Ardennes. And even though on paper, uh, in many ways, their position is extremely strong, they manage um, to um, make themselves sufficiently vulnerable that the Germans, the Germans are able to break through their line and the Allied position collapses like a, a house of cards. There's no, there's no question, of course, that you know, the, the Allies make some serious errors. Uh, and do those errors represent more fundamental weaknesses in, say, the French army or in Allied planning? There is there is something to be said for that. The the, the Allies don't uh, you know um, don't go through the phony war without making some mistakes in terms of the exact preparations that they've made. That's that's undeniable. On the other hand, um, are they just really really unlucky in in May of June of nineteen forty? I would say to some extent they are. You know it, it, we. Of course, history famously, we can't replay events. We can't um, we can't go back and have another go and, and change some of the variables slightly and see what happens. Um, but I have a feeling that if you replayed the Battle of France ten times, then nine out of those ten times the, the Germans probably lose, uh, or there is a stalemate in France. Uh, the Germans get bogged down somewhere in northern France. Now, if they do get bogged down in that way then Hitler's prospects are now starting to look increasingly bleak. Uh, most of his best forces have been squandered in this attack. His economic position is not strong. You have a feeling that many of his own generals may have started to grumble behind his back and possibilities of a coup or assassination might have grown. In other words, the, the prospect for the Allies is, is, is fairly rosy uh, if that happens. And 90% of the time, that's what probably happens. It's just in the in the world in which we actually inhabit the ten percent of uh, happened. The Black Swan event happened, um, and so uh, France, uh, to everyone's amazement, is is defeated. One of the factors that you described in uh, that that may have made the difference was the, uh, for lack of a better word, the unwillingness of the uh, leaders of the RAF to send over their their full uh, fleet of. Of, of, of fighters and, and every available plane to, to support the uh, the ground war that was taking place in France. As you explained, though, this is because the, uh, and I, I love the way you just kind of bluntly put it, that, that the RAF always expected to fight a battle of Britain and that that with the fall of France, that's exactly what they get. They now have this battle, which is, of course, now part of the mythology of, 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 of British and, and 
you know, let's be a bit more blunt, English identity, <laughs> but how it, how it's one that that as is so, so often the case when you're talking about uh, mythology is that there's a lot of misconceptions that accrue around it as well. So as I say in the book, you know, it, it's great that the British won the Battle of Britain, uh, but it would have been better still if they hadn't had to fight it in the first place. Um, there was there had always been a very semi-detached attitude by the British towards the alliance with France uh, at the beginning of the war. Chamberlain um, himself had been highly reluctant to make any commitment of fighting a large ground war in uh, on continental Europe. Um, he remembered, like many people did, of course, the the enormous uh, dreadful battles that had taken place in World War One the Psalm and Passchendaele and so forth. And he wanted, above all, to try and avoid that kind of situation of sending a large British land army to the uh, to the continent. And so his argument had been to the French uh, that, you know, if there is going to be an alliance, we ought to have, a, you know, a, a, a division of responsibility that reflects our particular national strengths. So the French provide the big army that's to fight the German army on the ground, uh, meanwhile, the uh, the British will command the, the the waves, command the seas, uh, and prevent you know Germany from being supplied from abroad. Will will enforce an economic blockade against Germany, and the Royal Air Force will conduct strategic bombing against Germany. The RAF had been created specifically for the purpose of strategic bombing in 1918, and it's still regarded its role uh, uh, as uh, as an offensive force as being its 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 principal task. Now, the French didn't really see it this way. Uh, they thought, well, it's all very well for you to sort of say that you're going to conduct the air war and the sea war, but most of the most of the fighting and the dying is going to take place on the ground. And in a democratic world, you can't really expect one partner to do all of the sacrifice and all of the dying and the other one to sit back. So the British had eventually been forced to see the logic of this position and had sent a, a ground force to, um, to France to fight alongside the French. Uh, but it was a fairly small one. And moreover, the Royal Air Force in particular still resolutely uh, refused to uh, commit uh, its, you know, the, the bulk of its strength, either its fighter force or its, its bomber force, into defending the, the ground forces. Now... Uh, there's two ways of looking at this. You know, one is that by um, jealously guarding its resources, it meant that when France fell in June of 1940, the British were in a pretty good position to be able to defend themselves against an air attack by the Germans. They already had a very sophisticated air defense uh, system, uh, through partly through radar, you know, this new technology, and also a very sophisticated uh, kind of network of command and control. Uh, they had, uh, you know, uh, large numbers of uh, fighter aircraft, which they had held behind in reserve during the battle for France. So if you assume that the France was inevitably going to fall, uh, then there does seem to be a great deal of wisdom in the, the British approach. On the other hand, if you assume, as I do, that actually it wasn't at all inevitable that France was going to fall, um, that uh, wiser policies and uh, a more uh, full-blooded attitude towards the ground war might have altered the balance, then that British decision seems not just unwise, but also extremely selfish. 
um, the French always looked at the alliance as being an alliance of of partners. That you know, if one goes down, both go down. The British never quite had that same kind of commitment. Um, they looked back afterwards when France did fall. Of course, they they were not you know uh, particularly keen to associate themselves very much with this defeat, and they very much looked at it as being France's own fault that France had been uniquely to blame for its own for its own misery. Um, but it's arguable that, uh, you know, the British themselves were, you know, partly the authors of this defeat because they had never really taken as seriously the the military alliance as they perhaps ought to have done. But nonetheless, that choice does lead to the uh, battle of, or contributes to the fact that you have this battle of Britain and, and, and this period of, of, of sustained warfare uh, where Britain is now under direct attack. I, I, the, 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 the title of one of the chapters you there is the scouring of the, the, the Shire folk. And it, it's, it, it, which of course, you, as with the battle of Britain becomes part of the, the mythology of, of British identity. Uh, it, you describe it though, it, again, in ways that, that push back against uh, a, a lot of what we've, you know, understood about it. For example, with the, you know, image of the war of the battle of Britain is one of, of spitfires and hurricanes, uh, you know, rising to the the challenge, and how they were the war winning weapons, and they definitely were 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 key to, to victory. But as you explained, that was what they were expecting. They actually had this uh, different uh, fighter design that that was going to be the winner, and it turned out to be a disaster. Or how the you know the the British remember the Germans constantly bombing them, and mm-hmm. that certainly did happen. But it was it, it was almost done in a half hearted way. As the Germans seem to be losing interest, and, and how this you know causes us to, to reconsider you know in, in a way just how serious the threat was, just, just how uh, prepared the British were, and, and just how uh, you know likely it was that that the war could have potentially ended in 1940, as the British you know li- like to believe uh, it might have had they been defeated. Well, the British remember. The Battle of Britain. I mean, you know, it, it is this, of course, this mythical moment uh, as being um, a, a moment in which they might so easily have been defeated. Um, that uh, you know, had events turned slightly against them, then the Germans would have been able to um, gain a superiority over southeastern England and allow the conditions for an invasion. Historians have pushed back a, a, a against this a lot in, in recent years. And I am of the personal belief that there actually was very little chance that once the Battle of Britain had started, um, that the Germans were going to be able to win, at least in the short term. The, the, it's, it's interesting that this is where uh, the reality of the war pushes against the, the myth. So it, it very much suits the British self-conception to think of themselves as being a group of rather beleaguered, uh, gentle amateurs who are faced against this overwhelming professional um, force of, uh, you know, fearsome warriors in, in 1940, where in, in many ways it's the opposite way around. Um, the Royal Air Force wins the Battle of Britain uh, because of its strength and its professionalism. Uh, the British had been preparing for such a war for a long time. The Germans had not, by contrast, been preparing for a strategic air offensive uh, ever. They had to pretty much invent the whole thing on the fly. Uh, And it's a very ad hoc affair. They never really have a great deal of strength uh, to begin with. They'd already taken very significant losses in the Battle of France. They don't have a particularly coherent plan. Um, And 
I, I don't think really the outcome is ever actually in doubt. Now, I do think that uh, a, a, a couple of months earlier uh, at Dunkirk, there really was a possibility that Britain could have lost the war. Um, had the British been unable to evacuate their army uh, from Dunkirk at the end of May 1940, and there were lots of reasons why that might have happened. I, I really do think at that point that uh, some kind of political settlement to the war probably would have been inevitable. But since that thankfully didn't happen, um, they were in the short term in a very strong position uh, in 1940. The Germans begin the bombing of London, uh, the beginning of the Blitz in early September 1940, not so much um, as, a, as a sign that the British are in a weak position, but because of uh, a lack of, of being able to think of whatever else to do. Uh, they are still sort of seeking some kind of military strategy that might persuade the British to come to the negotiating table. The thing about the Blitz is that um, it is a, 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 it's another heroic mythical moment. It does involve large, large loss of life, uh, about 40,000 Londoners and, and other people in Britain, uh, civilians in Britain are killed during the bombing. But it has actually comparatively little effect on Britain's ability to be able to conduct the war. The Germans don't have any coherent kind of strategic bombing plan for how they're going to sort of knock Britain out of the war. They don't really have any kind of um, theory about, you know, what kind of factories should you attack or port installations or, or resource supplies and so on. And so they're very much sort of making this up as they go along. Now, when the Allies, when the British and later the Americans attempt strategic bombing, um, against Germany, uh, particularly after 1942, uh, they do so in much greater strength and they do so with much more coherent sense about what they're trying to accomplish. And even then, it's a tremendously hard-fought battle. Uh, involves um, the use of, of resources, which is far greater than anything that the Germans have in 1940. And even then, it's still controversial about what, how much difference it really made to Germany's defeat. Strategic bombing just turned out to be a lot more difficult than anybody had realized back in 1939. And, um, you know, by May 1941, when the Germans largely give up strategic bombing and turn instead to the invasion of Russia, you know, it's, it's pretty much a reflection uh, that they have failed, that they have not been able to come up with anything that it seems like it's going to crack the British will to, to, uh, to continue resisting or going to have any kind of tangible effect on the, the British ability to continue to fight. The British are running into some severe financial difficulties by the beginning of 1941, but it doesn't really have anything to do with the Blitz. It has to do with their relationship with the United States. That relationship uh, becomes a very important part of your book at this point, because you talk about uh, the, the challenges they face. And, and again, this is a, a yet another example where we have this mythology of, you know, the United States and Great Britain standing shoulder to shoulder. The United States may not be in the war, but they're resolutely supporting the British. And again, you, you point out that, that wasn't the case. There was contingent upon certain things, such as Roosevelt's victory in the 1940 presidential election, uh, such as Britain's uh, rather perilous finances, and, and how this and, 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 of course, the ability to access this through uh, the, you know, uh, through trade, through 
the shipping, and it, which of course is being also challenged by the the Germans in the war. Though, though the British themselves are no longer being bombed directly after May 1941, the war is still very much on. And while the advantages may lay with the British, you make it clear that it, it's ne- not necessarily guaranteed that they're going to win at this point. So the short term advantages are certainly with the British um, in the, in the in the mid to late point of 1940. The long term situation, however, is much less clear cut. When the the chiefs of staff, the the British military chiefs of staff, uh, give their assessments to Churchill in 1940 about can Britain actually win this war, you know, they make it very clear that yes, they think it can, but that victory will be entirely contingent upon the active cooperation of the United States. Uh, Britain will require uh, the importation of very large amounts of raw materials and munitions and so on from North America, particularly from the USA. And it will only be able to do so as long as it has the financial wherewithal to be able to, to, to pay for them. Um, one of the consequences of uh, American isolationism in the 1930s had been the passage of the Neutrality Acts by Congress, which had meant that, um, amongst other things, um, the United States would not sell uh, war materials to any belligerent nation on any terms other than hard currency. So in other words, uh, you had to pay for these things either with dollars or with gold. Uh, Britain has, although it has a very large amount of both dollars and gold in 1939, it runs through its surplus uh, pretty dramatically uh, by the mid to late point of 1940. By by late 1940, it's becoming increasingly obvious that Britain is going to run out of both dollars and gold fairly soon. And then the question emerges, well, what then? Um, Will the United States continue to cooperate in providing Britain with access to the materials that it needs to continue fighting. And it's not at all clear, certainly in the, you know, uh, the, the midpoint of 1940, that that is the way that America is going to go. Um, after the fall of France, the threat to the United States from Nazi Germany becomes much more obvious. But what's not obvious is what American policy should be with regard to Britain. Should the, Brit- should the Americans regard the British as being their first line of defense and should they basically, therefore, provide them with as much assistance as absolutely uh, necessary? Or should they regard the British essentially as being a dead loss? Um, should they look rather to their own defences? Should they regard, you know, should, should they, they focus on a Western hemispheric defence? And that's a position which is taken up by very influential people around President Roosevelt. So George Marshall, for instance, the chief of staff of the army, uh, believes that in the summer of 1940, that the United States should stop, stop supplying Britain with war materials, that it should concentrate on its own defences, on the, on the build-up of its own army, um, and that it should essentially write the British off. Um, and Roosevelt himself, I think, doesn't make an immediate decision about this until uh, quite late. Um, victory in the Battle of Britain, of course, ultimately sort of turns the um, the Roosevelt administration more towards the idea that, well, yeah, Britain probably is going to be able to survive this, at least for the for the short term. And so it's worth backing the British. It's worth thinking more seriously about the British as being a, an ally. And this is the, the seed of what becomes the Lend-Lease Agreement in March of 1941. So Lend-Lease essentially eliminates this problem about gold and dollars by saying that 
through for the duration of the of hostilities, the United States will continue to supply Britain with materials, war materials, and raw 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 materials, and so on, without actually having to pay for them immediately. The 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 bill can be settled at the end of the war. Uh, this is an enormous relief for Britain in terms of its uh, ability to continue fighting. It also sets up a lot of problems for the post-war. It has to be said, something I'm going to explore more in the second volume, because it basically turns Britain into a patron, uh, economic patron of the United States. Um, and you know, the British ability to continue the war is very much going to be contingent upon American uh, acquiescence. Uh, and so the power relationship between these two military superpowers is going to change rather markedly as a result of the Second World War. But as I say, that's in, in, in 1941, that's sort of a problem for the future. Right now, the, 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 the crucial p- moment is that uh, the crucial point is that the Americans will cooperate. Now, having said that, of course, that doesn't mean that just because the United States is economically cooperating with Britain, that it's inevitable that it will enter the war. And for much of 1941, Churchill remains very, very frustrated by the um, unwillingness of the Roosevelt administration to actually take that final step and enter the war actively. Uh, Roosevelt sort of teases Chamberlain, uh, sorry, uh, Churchill from time to time with this idea that, you know, maybe, you know, maybe this will be the moment when, when he will declare war, he will ask Congress to, to declare war against Germany. And yet he always backs away at the last moment. When, the, when Churchill and Roosevelt meet in Newfoundland uh, for the, the Atlantic Charter Conference in August of 1941, Churchill goes to that conference thinking that Roosevelt is going to declare war against Germany, that that will be his big announcement um, during the conference. And he's, of course, tremendously disappointed when, when it becomes clear that Roosevelt has no intention of doing this. And he leaves um, Newfoundland actually rather depressed and frustrated and sort of vents in, you know, in private memorandums and so forth about, you know, how the Americans don't seem to be taking this seriously enough. Um, the, the United States will enter the war, of course, but it's going to be under very different circumstances in December 1941, thanks to Pearl Harbor. So uh, dare I ask how volume two is coming along? <laughs> <laughs> well, COVID isn't making it any easier. Um, and the and the uh, the closure or the or the or the only partial opening of archives in the UK, uh, plus the difficulties of international travel and so on, are, uh, are like you know like like every other researcher out there. You know, I I am struggling with all of this. Uh, I am I do have some I think interesting ideas. I hope they are interesting ideas about uh, how to talk about the second half of the war, and I'll be exploring, you know, both how the Allies actually managed to achieve victory and then also you know what kind of country britain is by 1945 how the war has changed it and how the war has also not changed it as well uh, and some of the legacies of the war um stretching into the the second half of the 20th century right up to today both the economic legacies political legacies and also some of the legacies with regards to culture and memory and so on um so i'm, I'm hoping uh, he says very cautiously for a uh <laughs> A, a, a completion date, perhaps in 2024, 2025. But, uh, you know, we're fighting a long war here, uh, you know, and so <laughs> I, don't, I don't want to uh, I don't want to make any pre- premature, uh, you know, declarations of victory. We'll, we'll see how things go in the long run. Well, I hope that uh, when it's finished, we can have you back on the podcast, talk about volume two. Oh, I'd love to. That'd be wonderful. Thank you.
Uh, Alan Allport, thank you very much for taking some time out of your schedule to speak with us. I hope you have a wonderful day. Thank you. You too, Mark.